You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What impact are all these judges having on us? None of you are, you know, really impacted by a judge, are you? Yeah. We all are. And not just at the Supreme Court level. I mean, just the decision uh, of uh, gay marriage. That Just remember the impact that that had on your community, on discussions in your community. You know, a decision, it does get the the conversations going, right? It gets us talking. And, um, and, And I think there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in being able to discuss stuff. In fact, I'm convinced if we could communicate better, we wouldn't be as impacted by the justices. One of the things I've been learning a lot about the Supreme Court is they really are a very unified body in that they have a rule, for example, that when they hear um, – and this is when they're in chambers, not in front of everybody – but when they when they go through and make and have discussions about certain issues, they have a rule that everybody at the table – has to answer and give their opinion about the issue before anyone can give a second opinion. So nobody can have two comments until everybody's had one comment, which is a really cool principle. And I think the, their ability to maybe think through it, uh, to talk without necessarily having to react to everything, um, it's, I, I think if we could understand how they do it behind the scenes, we might value some of their decisions more. I get, too, that you have your issues and everyone has their position, but but uh, there's also something to see there. And I saw a story that I wanted to bring to all of our attention about a judge in Georgia, in Bibb County, Georgia, um, Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. There's a viral video out with, her, with Verda Colvin um, discussing – the consequences with some wayward kids. They, they were in a program. She was a, she's in her robes. They're in the courtroom, and she has two sides of the courtroom. The girls are on one side. Young men are on the other side. Uh, Judge Verda Colvin is an is a African-American female, and she's talking to a room predominantly of African-Americans. And um, it was, I think, one of the most beautiful sites, I think, of, of a judge – and the power of a judge as she's arguing and making an argument in front of these kids that are in trouble. They're, you know, they're in one of those programs that they're trying to get them some reality. And let me just play a few of, um, of her points. One of the first things she's telling them is you're going to have a choice here. You're, you're either going to end up in court or, or a body bag. You can have the ultimate experience. You can be in this body bag. And the only way somebody will know you're in here is by this tag that'll have your name on it. What do you want to do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you want to do? What? That's what you might want to start doing. Because listen to me. The way you're going, you will go to jail. Or you will get up in this body bag. Mm. 
she also uh, is is pleading with them to be something. You're special. You're uniquely made. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the Internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody. Anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Mm. Don't you love that? This is this is a civil servant helping you parents raise your kids, helping all of us. I mean, think about it. If you had a child that was wayward and struggling, wouldn't you love a judge like Superior Judge, uh, Court Judge Verda Colvin telling your kids this? Um, Another thing she says is don't let your school or don't let your family become an excuse. But you don't have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live, but don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through it who's successful now. Mm, Last but not least, she's going to help all of us remember that we're special. Nobody else can do what you're supposed to do in this world. Nobody else. And if you don't do it, we won't have it. I, I continue to believe one reason why our society is so messed up, because some people who were supposed were born to do certain things just dropped the ball. They didn't do it. And so for every person who didn't do what they needed to do because they were given unique gifts and talents, we're missing something as a society. Mm. An eight-minute speech by Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. We're special. You've got to deliver something. If you don't deliver it, guess what? Nobody does. We don't get it. And kids, you have a choice. Court, at this rate, you're going to be in court and jail or you're going to be in a body bag. I love it. I guess that's judicial activism. Yeah, everybody needs to hear it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we're going to do a little word review today. Today we'll be learning and relearning the word Farfig, Farfig Newton. Joining us now is our German expert, Ben Wasden. Ben, uh, did I say that word properly? It is not a Fig Newton, Matt. Far Fig Newton. I love Fig Newtons. How do we say it if we don't say it? Far Fig Newton. Far Fagnugen. Say that one more time. Far Fagnugen. Ah, wrong. That is not right. It's Far Fig Newton. By the way, let's go through the word now, break it down a little bit. Nugen? Gnugen? Knugen is to like enjoy. Farch. Farch. Far. Farch. Yeah, far. How do you say it? Far. Okay, what does that mean? To drive. To drive. Well, and- it's like drive. Fahren is to drive, but far is like drive. And Gnugen? To enjoy. So to enjoy driving. Far Gnugen. Mm-hmm. By the way, again, second time. In about in less than an hour, I bring up an iconic word like Farfig Newton, and Ben doesn't even know what it means. And he lived in Germany for two years. Oh, come on! Exactly. How do you not know that, Ben? You've never heard that term? No. Volkswagen made it famous. It's to enjoy driving. 
It's that experience of the of driving your car, thinking you're getting 45 miles to the gas when in rea- gas mileage, when in reality you're getting 28. That feeling of ignorant dishonesty. Right? Yes, that feeling that you have got the world by the tail, and yet really what you're doing is coughing emissions all over the world, destroying Mother Earth. <laughs> yep, <coughs> says Mother Nature. Quit polluting me, you farfig nugan. So let's get this straight. It's not a fig newton. No. Darn it. Fig newtons aren't really even that enjoyable. So. Now, again, we had a debate about this. Fig newtons are – figs are the oldest fruit known to man. I don't know if that's true. But it, the Greeks had them. They, they go back a long, long way. So – Figs, I'm pretty sure a fig may have been what Eve tempted Adam with. In fact, trust me, I don't think Adam would have been tempted. He by would, a fig. oh man, uh, maybe a fig Newton then. Fig Newton's greatest food on earth. You don't understand it. You're too young. You grew up with fruit roll ups. That's just wrong. I was more of a Gushers fan. A Gusher. Where on earth do you find. A fruit roll-up filled with fruit juice. It's not in nature. It's not fruit juice. No, fruit goop. Yeah, okay. It's not normal. Fig Newton, totally normal. Seriously, if you just blend up some fig and put some Newton around it, bada-boom, bada-bing, you made yourself the perfect midday snack. What is a Newton? A Newton. It's like a it's like a little breaded pocket. It's like a hot pocket. It's like a pocket for fig. It's like a sleeve. It's a fig sleeve. Mm. If you're with me, give me a call. One eight five five chat BYU. If you want the fig Newton to become more famous and popular than it ever has been, give me a call. Or if you want to go back to some of the old famous cookies, a Lorna Dune, for example. Mm. Good food. I'm just trying to educate these young folk, these young kids that just they don't know things like Fig Newton. They don't know things like Farfig Newton. We're losing you guys. We're losing a generation. And this show, we're here. We're here to save all generations. We're here to teach the elders, the seniors of the world how to live with technology, learn from our youngsters, but we're also here to hand down the wisdom that can only come from those with a little gray in their hair or with no hair at all. We're here. Volkswagen, I'm disappointed. You were my first car. You have betrayed us. And trust is hard to come by. And so uh, now make it good. Make it good. Someday we can maybe trust you again. And for the rest of us, that so those out there that have already bought the Volkswagen, I'm sorry. They better make it right for you. Throw They're, it deep, sell it cheap. It's exactly right. One of my favorite quotes. Throw it deep, sell it cheap. Tanner Mangum. Meme it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, you think about it. It's just easy to say, well, you know, if these people would just, uh, you know, save their money... They wouldn't get in this trouble, and then they wouldn't have kids that have behavior problems. Oh, great. Easy for you to say. Again, most of us, I don't feel, truly get what it feels like to um, to be completely underwater financially. 
you know, where you've got four lives hanging on your paycheck and it's already 30, 40 percent below what you need. So let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to not to just quickly critique and assume that this is just simply because people love to spend money and they don't have self-discipline. There are a lot of heroes that I think if we could go and look at, you know, maybe the average worker at a fast food restaurant, a mother with a couple children at home trying to make a living. And again, you may not like these minimum uh, uh, minimum wage options that are being proposed out there. And again, I'm a business owner too. I'm not a I don't love being told exactly how much I have to pay somebody. When I have to have the discussion with my son to come vacuum my office and um he asks me how much will you pay me and I tell him minimum wage and he's like, "Yeah, no. Not doing that. I won't. I won't work for that." And I'm like, "You're 14, boy." <laughs> this was a few years ago. "You're 14." Well, I can get 10, you know, working on a food truck. No, you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, he got his job. He got a job this summer. And uh, he's going to wash cars for just a, under minimum wage but some tips. Went to his first day of school or of, of work. Came home that night. How'd it go, son? Yeah, I want a new job. It's interesting. Work is hard. But uh, be grateful for what you do have, right? You, If you have the blessing or the benefit now to actually be ahead financially or just breaking even financially, it's a huge benefit to you that you may not even understand. People that have money live longer. Well, duh, because they can just sit at the beach and maybe. But some of it's simply because when you have money – you live in a different location. You live in a healthier place. Data has existed uh, from the American Medical Association talking about the fact that simply where you choose to live in the country will determine your life expectancy too. Right? This is, this is the diet you're going to end up participating in. This is the, the friends your kids are going to have. Smoking, drugs, alcohol, all of those things – decline when you have more income, interestingly. Would you believe that? According to a study in 2010, uh, in the annual review of sociology, poorer people are more likely to smoke and drink in excess, which are both potential causes of dying younger. So there's a lot of this that's tied to your income. Exercise. People with more money are more likely to exercise. Well, sure, they got the time. That's totally true. The exercise a lot of the the um, poorer people might get is running to the bus that then has to drive them for two hours to their job. That's their exercise. They sit more time probably on mass transit trying to get to their home that's affordable. And wealthier people have the luxury maybe of just getting in a car or taking a shorter ride to their home. They're able to live maybe closer to work. Statistically, uh, uh, wealthier people are more educated, which decreases uh, or increases your, re- your revenues, your incomes. 
there's a ton of benefits to it and wealthier people have more access to health care. And when we now find out that your debt and your debt load impact your child's behavior, kids whose parents have unsecured debt, who are constantly trying to get the credit card bills paid, who are going to payday loans, those their kids are going to struggle. Which came first, the kid or the payday loan? I would apparently argue it's the debt. And there's a million reasons why people are in debt. Remember that. We are so quick to judge and we can't just judge. If we want to create a healthier community, then let's go fight for better rules, better laws to manage what people can charge as interest. I mean, I guess it's beautiful to just have capitalism, but there's a cost to capitalism that we are now maybe learning and some of the costs to some forms of capitalism or at least just extreme money-making mentalities is simply it might be impacting our health and our and our behavior of our children. I mean, let's just look at it. You don't have to love it, but we can start to figure out why some people just can't seem to get out of this hole instead of having an immediate reaction that, oh, they're just not trying hard enough. Let's reverse it. Let's, wouldn't that be a great test? Reverse it for real. Have all of Congress go live in an inner city. See how they handle it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you get a runny nose or you suddenly don't feel very well, where do you go to get medical help? Do you go to a health care center? Do you go to an urgent care, a clinic? Do you just call your, you know, your general practitioner? Where are you supposed to go? Well, depending on the symptoms and the time of day, it's a very confusing decision to make. And so here to speak with us about the current healthcare system is Professor Keith Coker, who is a, an emergency physician and a, a health services researcher. He's here today to walk us through some of the chaos that comes when it comes to getting health care in an acute form. We appreciate you being here, Dr. Coker. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you asking me to, to join your show, and I agree, it can be chaotic. You know, a crazy situation. I had a son playing football, fell, broke his arm uh, during practice. We, the parents weren't there, so they called an ambulance, the fire department. <laughs> Two police cars mm-hmm. showed up. They took him, transported him to a, a smaller hospital um, where we then spent thousands of dollars to be diagnosed with a broken arm, which, by the way, was already obvious. And yeah. then they couldn't do anything for him because they didn't have the equipment to set the to set it using live imaging or re, I don't know. I don't remember some imaging device. So then they sent we sent him. We took him the next day to another hospital. Uh, a child children's hospital where they took care of it. And I'm thinking, why didn't we do that the night before? We could have taken him to the, you know, the children's hospital. Right. And so it, when I when I heard this topic, I'm thinking, yeah, we don't know where to go anymore. 
Yeah, and this is an example that you relate where you actually know you need care in like an ER. <laughs> right. You know, think about a situation where a patient or family is not sure where to turn. Mm. Um, and it's less less obvious, and, and certainly your pathway through the system was convoluted. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you're not even sure where to turn to begin with, it's even more challenging. Mm. And, and it could, I mean, some people, I know, their first thought is just go to the ER. But that also is, sometimes that's overkill, right? That's And that becomes incredibly expensive. And others are maybe under-hitting it, and they might just be going to a local clinic when they may be having a heart issue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that really is the realities um, of how healthcare is delivered for these situations um, where you generally use the term acute care, but sort of care for situations that are unexpected or unscheduled. Um, and sometimes as a patient, um, you're exactly right. You're not sure. Um, you're not sure if this is a problem that it's minor and maybe gets better on its own or is minor enough that you can afford to wait for a few days um, or, or if it's serious. Um, and so you're right. Um, you know, I think for me, what I, what I find really troubling is when patients choose based on uh, their own internal punished afterwards for being deemed to choose unwisely or inappropriately or incorrectly um, it's just really not fair. Mm. No, I, I agree. And and I guess help us with this, because when um, when patients are deciding where to go, you know, as a doctor, you, you kind of know how to how to triage, you know how to decide that. But to walk us through what are the different factors that make up a how how to make these decisions, but but also that complicate the decision as well as to where we need to go. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, I, I think fundamentally one of the challenges here is that everybody's local community is different, and your options are driven so much by the resources that are in your immediate surroundings. So, for example, you know, going back to to your story about your son, um, it sounds like the children's hospital was quite a distance away mm-hmm. versus you know the local uh, ER. Um, but it's even more than that. You know, urgent cares are different. Uh, availability of your own general practitioner or primary care physician um, may, may be hit or miss. Um, and, and that's what's really challenging is you have this fractured system. You have lots of potential possibilities. Uh, not all of them are open to you. Um, and how do you choose? And I think... Um, you know, the, the guidance that that typically is given is um, certainly your own physician who knows you well, your own clinician um, can can be the, the first stop for many things. Um, I think there are certainly other cases where it's pretty obvious that you need to be seen in, in something like an emergency department, um, uh, but then there's a lot of gray. Um, and... What I, what I find the hardest is that most of the time I feel like what's lost is the, the patient or family's perspective in all this. Um, and at the end of the day, what, what, what we want, what patients want is how, how to receive care where they get reassurance, they get treatments, um, and, and that's timely. 
and that's really hard um, for us to deliver as a healthcare system right now. I mean, I, and I guess that's that's it, isn't it? It's the healthcare system seems almost at odds with each other or itself. The the patient obviously is supposed to be the center, the kind of the hub. It seems like of the healthcare system, except there is obviously competition. And then, like you were talking about, accessibility, plus we have in the system and out of the system, and the hospital closest to you may not be even in your system, and yet if you need emergent care, <laughs> where else do you go? You Anyway, it's, it, it, it almost yeah. seems like then we're scared. We're afraid to get the urgent care in the f- best place possible just, just simply because we can't pay for it because it's not in my system. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think, um, you know, it's hard to talk about um, health care changes these days because it gets so political so quickly. Um, but I do feel like people um, are in earnest trying to reform the system in a way uh, that drives improvements in care, um, higher quality, better cost effectiveness. Um, but one of the things that's been lost um, over the last decade or so of this work is is how do we promote Timeliness is as a as a characteristic that is important um, as we think about changing healthcare to do better. Hmm. Um, and I do think it requires system thinking. Um, going back to some of what you're saying, um, I think it's hard for an individual hmm. clinician or clinic to um, reliably provide the kind of services that allow patients to be seen in a timely way for these problems that are. You know, unanticipated, it's hard to schedule for them. Um, and it requires thinking beyond just a single office. Um, you have to think about a local system, a collection of clinics, a collection of hospitals. Um, and you're right, it can spiral into competition, um, which can be barriers to some of this, some of the solutions to this. Um, but, I, but I think we, we need to bring to the forefront um, the the need, I think, for patients and families to receive timely care. And as I said, I feel like that's been lost in much of the conversation. I think um, I've seen, I mean, ju- just a logistical issue, too, is as a, as a patient, uh, when I, every time I kind of go from a different provider to a different provider to a different provider, I feel like every time I arrive, I'm starting over. <laughs> And I have to create a a completely new record set where how powerful could it be if I could carry my records with me? If everywhere I was, my record set was and any physician could plug into that and gather my history quickly. And I mean, I guess that's that's another thing that probably impacts timeliness, too, because then you sit there filling out the forms when you could just be, you know, informing the doctor immediately. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think one of the realities, too, about um, caring for these situations, acute care, and, and probably even more broadly than that, is that uh, we we have um, a system of care that's fractured. And so things like information exchange um, doesn't happen. Um, so if you go to an urgent care and then you follow up after that visit with your own doctor, um, there's there's no way to link those records. Your own doctor doesn't know what happened in that urgent care. Um, and <clears throat> I, I, there there are definitely efforts to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think one of the hopes is as that changes, uh, that things like um, patient safety and cost, but also I would imagine, like you were suggesting, timeliness can improve as well uh, as we improve our ability to uh, receive and exchange vital healthcare information quickly. Yeah, when I go get a car, I fill out one form and everybody knows my credit history. <laughs> Um, it right. seems like I should be able to go to any hospital, give them two or three numbers, and everybody – I mean, not everybody, but everybody with access should be able to you know, legitimately, legally, safely access my records and then, in, and then add to the record. Absolutely. And it, you know, I can speak directly from you know, my line of work, working in an ER. It makes a big difference. If I um, have no experience or history with a patient or a patient – doesn't have um, a history with our hospital or system, it's hard to get up to speed quickly and rapidly, mm. particularly in time-sensitive situations where that kind of information can really make a big difference. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. I mean, I because I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I know oh, yeah. how little information <laughs> I could give you about what right. just happened to this person. <laughs> and so then I I can't imagine you trying to solve a problem like, is this person having an allergic reaction, or is it because right. they're on these three meds? I mean, right. it's... It, it really it leaves us hanging. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Keith Coker. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Michigan. Also is the author of a, a wonderful article we found from theconversation.com, A Fractured System. Where do you go when you suddenly need health care? When we come back, Dr. Coker will be giving us some solutions, what we should be doing, what we can do as patients to make sure that we... We, we hopefully make more effective decisions, but also that we keep our, our uh, physicians informed um, and, and have a better shot of, of giving us the service that we need. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and healthier lives. We'll be right back. friends to the Matt Townsend show. You know, where do you go when you're not feeling well and uh, you need help immediately, quickly? Do you have a plan? Do you know how to decide whether you just go to the urgent care next to your, uh, you know, next to your supermarket? Do you go to the clinic where you go see your physician or do you just head straight to the emergency room? How do you make those decisions? And especially in such a fractured uh, system as we have today in the healthcare world, Joining us on the phone is Dr. Keith Coker. Dr. Coker is an emergency physician and health services researcher. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Michigan and is the author of um, an article, A Fractured System, Where Do You Go When You Suddenly Need Health Care? Dr. Coker, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here, yeah. So what? where do we go? So, I mean, I guess it depends on, I mean, a bunch of factors, time, time of day, you know, type of injury, um, symptoms that you're suffering from. But, I mean, is it something that we should we should probably sit down and think through right now before we have a, an illness or an injury? It seems like we should probably have a plan made. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I think what you pointed out is right. One of the challenges here is 
it's a huge spectrum of problems yeah. that you could be dealing with from something that is minor and will just go away to something really life-threatening could happen at any hour of the day, any day of the year. Um, and I think you're right. I think it begins with doing just a little bit of investment in thinking about um, where I would turn um, given a certain scenario. Um, I think your own physician uh, or clinician uh, should be a resource here. Um, and, you know, it may be worth um, at the next appointment that you have for whatever problem um, asking uh, what happens, uh, you know, if I were to have a problem that I need some help with. Uh, office and um, is there um, uh, an urgent care that's affiliated with your your practice um, that I, I might have the option of seeing is there a hospital that you would recommend going to um, an ER for um, I, I think spending a little bit of time and thinking about it um, is uh, the advice I'd provide yeah uh, in fact I was passing a kidney stone and uh, yeah. I thought I'll just get to my hospital. I know where I need to go. I know where I'm covered. And it was so bad that I'm like, take me anywhere. Take me to the closest place. And again, it was out of it was out of our um, whatever we call it, out of our system. And then I ended up paying out of pocket and it was a nightmare. But problem, we fixed the problem. But in the end, I guess the like you're saying, you can't always know. But, you know, you might you might have some peace of mind knowing that you have some plans. I think that's right. And, um, and you're, you know, the person that you see on a regular basis, um, you're a general practitioner, primary care doctor, clinician, um, they are definitely a resource. Um, and for the most part, um, they can also provide some triage for you. So if you're to call, um, with a set of problems uh, that you can describe over the phone. They can give you some advice about that. Um, I will say one of the challenges in all this is, of course, um, the, from, and this is sort of my perspective as an ER doctor, but the default position is oftentimes like go to the ER. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's totally appropriate and correct, um, but sometimes there may be some other options uh, that are just not on the table. Um, uh, going back to the problem where we just aren't thinking about timeliness as being important. We haven't created systems that provide capacity uh, to take care of patients um, in timely ways. Uh, and so, um, you know, the ER is oftentimes a, a very appropriate uh, solution, but it's also kind of like the nuclear option. Um, and, and there very well may be other ways to, to manage a problem that may not require uh, the ER per se. Are, are there ways that we as patients could maybe apply more pressure on the system um, or or like more suggestions? Because, yeah, I think I think you're right. Sometimes the last thing you want to do is go and sit there be, and have yeah. to wait for 50 minutes as everyone's hacking and sick around you. Is, is there, is there any, I mean, I mean, I'm sure people give feedback, but anything else we can just do as I guess, really the center of the system? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great question. Um, it's daunting to think about how do I change a system, uh, that has roots that go so, you know, so deep in the way that things are structured. Um, but I probably, 
starting small with, again, um, next time your, your doctor's office um, just asking about what, what the options are um, and maybe pushing a little bit and thinking about, okay, well, um, you know, if I um, sprain, injured my ankle and I wasn't sure what the problem was, was it broken or just sprained, like, is this something you could take care of? Um, if I were to call here or, you know, if I had a, a cold that was lingering, like generally how quickly could you get, could you fit me in, um, to the schedule? Um, at least feeling that out a little bit will provide you in those moments, uh, where a problem arises, some sense of your options. And, and no, I guess no, Know what um, – understand the system. I mean it's it's funny. A lot of us are a part of these healthcare systems and we don't know what they're offering. But they, they probably offer a, a variety of other benefits or services like nutritionists or other things that we that are at our disposal as well that we don't even know we're using. We just probably need to learn – you know, you're a member of a certain club. You might want to know what the club offers. Yeah, um, and I – I, I think that also applies to your uh, insurance com- coverage and company. Right. Um, oftentimes, insurance companies will have um, some guidance around options, um, like local urgent cares, um, uh, and, and so other other potential solutions. Um, and I will say, there's I think increasingly a lot of experimentation going on in the healthcare marketplace um, around how to better address. Um, these issues, again, in a timely way. Um, so, for example, uh, telehealth, um, there's a really a lot of experimentation going on around um, are there ways to use um, uh, technology to, to effectively deliver this kind of service hmm. directly to the patient, you know, in, yeah. at the point of care. Um, and it's it's still probably mostly in its infancy, um, but... Uh, we may see a lot of change in this area over the next few years. Well, how do you feel as an emergency room physician about WebMD and some of these diagnostic tools online? It seems um, like a lot of people might be bringing yeah. in their diagnosis. <laughs> there, there's some of that. I mean, they they have their drawbacks. I mean, I, I think I would characterize it as a, as a symptom of exactly the problem that we're describing. Yeah. You know, people don't, people aren't sure what to do. Um, they're not sure how to take, uh, how to, uh, interpret their symptoms. Is it a bad problem? Is it a, um, no big deal problem? And so they're, they're turning to all kinds of resources that are quickly available to them. Um, you know, like WebMD or a Google, you know, good old Google search. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't always provide the best advice, but I, again, I think it's, it's something where I would, I would point to and say, we can do better. There's there's a need here that we need to address better than what we're doing. Yeah. And overall, too, it sounds like a lot of what your article talks about is the fact that it, it needs to be turned back to the patient. It's about yeah. the patient. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I um, And I feel like some of the motivation for my work was simply because I encounter this on a regular basis as I work in the emergency department. Um, and, and, I, and it's not that people... Um, or policymakers and you know, administrators aren't thinking about this um, in, at certain times, but um, when they do think about it, 
the the solutions are frequently considered from the perspective of um, yeah, how can we address this? But how do we address it in a way that also meets like the needs of my hospital or my insurance company or uh, my my office? Um, and uh, and so the the patient family perspective uh, tumbles down the list of priorities. Hmm. It's um, it, should you shop by price? I mean, it's, this is your health care. And it seems yeah. like some, some people I know and just remember from my EMT days, price isn't an option. Like they would call us to take an ambulance just to get the ride to the hospital. Um, yeah. But but and some they only shop by price. Um, so they don't you know, they might even put off getting the health care they need because of the cost. So how yeah. do we how do we just balance you know, our fear of, you know, being charged out of pocket, whatever, our co-pays versus getting effective health care. Well, you, you bring up a really challenging um, problem in general with uh, how we pay for health care right now. There's not a lot of price transparency. There's not a lot of ability to shop around based on price uh, or quality. Um, and, you know, there, there are definitely efforts to get that out uh, in the public's to the public's eye, um, but that works really well with a problem where you know I need a hip replacement and, and I'm going to shop around. I have the luxury right. of shopping around a little bit to figure out what hospital I want to do it at or what surgeon I want to use. Um, it doesn't work as well, you know, when you're facing an emergency, um, and and so those kinds of solutions may not always apply to these situations. Um, that being said, um, you know, there are certainly some problems where you have uh, some time to think about it. Again, going back to this uh, ankle injury example. Um, and so, um, you know, if you ended up needing some x-rays, um, I mean, you should be able to shop around on that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you should be able to know. Know the price. Um, it, yeah. If I if I go to this urgent care, what is that price? If I go to this ER, what's that price? If I go to my doctor's office, what's that price? Um, and it's, it, but it's confusing because it, it depends on your insurance coverage and you know all kinds of other factors. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know what? I guess we're doing what we can. What uh, as we wrap up, Doctor Coker? What would you? What advice would you give us? What's the one thing that uh, we could do today to to make sure we're ready, make sure we're prepared to handle whether it's acute care or just improve our overall health care. I think at the end of the day, um, I would just spend a little bit of time and think about it from your perspective. Uh, what are your options in your local community? Uh, what are your options with um, with your own physician um, as a starting point? Um, because all care for these kind of situations is generally local. That's right. That's right. Great advice. Dr. Keith Coker, thank you so much for being with us and for your article. Again, people, you can go find the article at theconversation.com. A fractured system. Where do you go when you suddenly need health care? You know, it's one thing to blame President Obama for, you know, Affordable Care Act, but that's not the problem. That's not, you know, that's a portion of an issue. The issue is much more complicated. It is a fractured system, and it's a competitive system that wants to be collaborative and wants to help uh, with your health, but it's still your health. You've got to own it. You've got to take responsibility where you can. We will take a break, come back, wrap up hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, our goal is to help you live longer and lead healthier, happier lives, but uh, it's still your choice. We'll be back. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So obviously, healthcare systems, they're fractured. They're, and because they're going in so many different directions, it doesn't always mean that you, the consumer, will always get the best deal. Uh, the same is happening in another enormous industry, not as, not as important to your health. Though I believe it is. Well, I, for I, you, it may be. <laughs> I love TV. Yes. TV is a wonderful thing. I, I get great TV, enjoyment. TV, my friend. It, absolutely. <laughs> so for, for months, we've kind of been every once in a while talking about this idea of cutting the cord where you don't have a cable or mm-hmm. a satellite subscription, and that number keeps growing. Every like quarter, fly the coop. Yeah, you, you just decide you're going to leave. Don't do that. We're not doing cliches that was all another cliche. day. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, you said cut the cord. Some recent numbers. Well, that's a cliche, but it's also a thing. Um, <laughs> for months, the numbers keep growing as people decide to not have a cable or satellite right. subscription. The number one, the most expensive channel you pay for if you have one of those is ESPN. Yeah. You pay around $7 a month for, and that, it, one for that one channel. Right. Jeez. And and they saw a six hundred twenty one thousand dollars or thousand subscription loss last month. Apparently, wow, that's now no. they're debate they're 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 uh, protesting this. They want the Nielsen Media Company to go and pull their numbers again because they feel that number is too high. But still, <laughs> they're losing a massive number of of subscribers, and at seven dollars each. But they're losing subscribers because people are giving up cable. Yeah. Because they just need their internet, and then they can go watch Netflix or... Right. So everyone's trying to offer these other streaming options. Now, ESPN has what they're paying $1.9 billion a year to the NFL. They're paying $1.4 billion to the NBA, Man. $700 million to Major League Baseball, $608 million to college fo- for the college football playoff, $225 million to the uh, college football conference, the ACC, $190 million to the big... T- they need this money. Unbelievable. <laughs> they have massive contracts out to people. And it goes on. It says if this trend continues, they'll lose... By 2021, they'll lose 74 million subscribers that year. That is... So, so the, they're dying. So the question... It looks like people aren't paying for cable. And the, if the trend continues, yeah. what does that mean for cable TV? What does that mean for TV in general? Well, they, that means that they're going to have to find another way to get their hook in. Yeah. So they'll just charge you for their app and you'll pay 12 bucks. But which would be worth it for the people that really want ESPN? Yeah. But that, that's the other problem is if you get cable and you don't want sports, you're still paying that right. exorbitant price Come for something on. you don't even want to watch. Like for me and the Animal Planet, I don't want it. I have it. Don't want it. Why do you hate animals? I just don't want to watch that channel. It gets your goat, doesn't it? Yeah. Man, he fell for that hook, line, and sinker. (laughs) Back to cliches again. That's so funny. Maybe if you don't like animals, maybe just go get a green thumb. Could be. That'd be on the HG channel. Yeah. It's in the box. There we go. We're done. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. There's a YouTube video of a, of a, a sister um, and, a, and some brothers. Um, everybody has seen, you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, they pull your teeth and then they drug, you're all drugged up. And then a lot of people have been making vi- videos about, you know, how 
out of control you are or the dumb things you say when you're under the influence of the medication after surgery, right? So this these two brothers uh, have basically – they picked their sister up and for some reason mom and dad are like, yeah, do this. This is a great idea because they seem to have been involved. And they put this elaborate scheme together that once the sister was all drugged up and they were bringing her home, they they had this basically scheme where on the radio – an emergency alert comes up that basically says um, that that there's basically a zombie apocalypse, that there's a virus that's spreading. And um, this woman is under drugs. And her. Uh, so let me just play some of the clips for you. This is crazy. Um, this is the uh, emergency alert system. The Center for Disease Control in Washington, D.C. has issued a viral outbreak warning. State and local officials have reported cases of high fever, nausea, So, what the heck? Did you? Hold on, hold on, mom's calling. So, the girl's her mouth is packed with gauze, and she's like, "You're driving like a slug. Get to the house." She's mad. She's you know she's post surgery, high on drugs, angry. And the brothers, um, but they, they they had this elaborate thing playing. So all of a sudden, she buys into the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But then we get home, and they're trying to fill the car up with stuff. And you got to ask questions, right? You got to find out like, what do we keep? What do we not keep? Listen um, to uh, the next clip about uh, this is about which animal, which pet we keep. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat. Okay. Okay. No. What do we do with the dog? Okay, we will, the okay, cat. okay, I'll pick up the cat. Maybe. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Okay, um. <laughs> so you have to choose between the dog and the cat. She's like, the cat, you idiot. Duh. The dog's already dying. <laughs> and um, the next one is about what, what chocolate cake we should take. Millicent, we can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one it's do we take? Fun Fun Betty, do you want Fun Betty or chocolate? Which? No, Millicent, this is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Fun Betty, chocolate. <laughs> why? Why she's yelling? Why does it matter? There's zombies. No, this is important. Important, Millicent. Fun Betty or chocolate? Um, and then they got to go to Mexico, right? Because Dad, I guess, is on a trip in in Las Vegas, and they got to get to Mexico. Dad says. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> I can say, I can say pants. So this poor girl, <laughs> she's sitting in the car the whole time, and the brothers are running around. That's why they're out of breath. At one point, they're loading gardening equipment they're in the back, gardening. and she goes, what do we need a garden hoe for? Yeah. Get the guns. What are we doing? They hand her a supposed weapon with a trigger, but it's really one of those extension bars for seniors that help them get their cereal off the top shelf. Yeah. The little grabber bar. Like, here's the safety, and here you... <laughs> so then, they, then they're like, so Millicent, we, about Costco. They got to go to Costco. Should we go to Costco? Listen to her reply. Do you think Costco... Should we go to Costco first? No, it's gonna be a bloodbath in there. <laughs> she's probably right. She's probably right. 
Should we go to Costco? No, it's going to be a bloodbath in there. They filmed the entire thing. So we're going to post it on our uh, at Dr. Matt show Twitter feed. And you got to you got to look it up. It is. It's funny. It's funny. It's brother, sister gone awry. That that line um, about the cat. Did you see how she knew exactly which one she keeps? Oh, yeah. Like there wasn't even a break. <laughs> she hates the dog. The cat. The dog is dying. <laughs> We're going with the cat. Um, but then it was – so even though they – it was like – it was a pretty extensive game they played on their sister. They saved her because right when they told her – Yeah. At the end, they're like, uh, it's a joke. We're going to go home now. She got this look in her eye. And you, it was like that moment where you know she's either going to lose it, start crying, or freak out and start hurting somebody and they turn the video off. I think it will be worse – when she's, you know, I think it was worse when she came out of the drug haze that yeah. she was in. When she realized what was there and she saw the video, she'd probably go nuts. I know. I'm dying to know what she felt about that. But who, what brother hasn't loved to play a trick like that on their sister? They would, we'd all like to do that. Did you ever have a family member tease sure. you? At some point. I mean, we had my brother convinced he was adopted. That's that's a common one. Well, that's an easy one. Everyone he does, does that one. My sister and I look like my father's side of the family. Yeah. My brother looks like my mother's side of the family. So it was an easy easy was uh, adopted story to to buy. That's dramatic. That's poor. That's sad it's, for him. It's fine. He's 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 grown out of it. My sisters used to just say, "Hey, touch the lighter." So. <laughs> Back in the day, cars had lighters that you'd push in, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they'd stick, and then you pull them out, and then there's these orange coils that are just glowing steaming. hot. Yeah, yeah, glowing I used hot. to play with that all the time. And that one of my sisters was like, "Touch it." And now that's that's your electrical port. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that's just where we plug our our tools and our devices in. So things have changed. I mean, I'd probably rather have a zombie apocalypse threat than have somebody tell me to touch a fiery coil of lava. Right. Just saying. I used to sit in the car and burn stuff on it. Did you? Yeah, like we had paper in the you know just in the, in the glove compartment. You're yeah. like, Shh, and then toss it out the window. <laughs> Those were the days. Again, back in the days when we didn't care about kids, we didn't buckle them in. We didn't just have seats. Slide around the back seat. Yeah. It's fine. Don't worry about this it. This is great, Dad. Do you remember when you got in the car and the seat belts were scalding hot? My first car seat as a kid was made out of uh, foam, but most of the foam was gone, so it was just metal and like <laughs> duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and look how you turned out. It's great. You're fine. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, have have we changed technology, bringing families closer together. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We could make up whatever story you need to make up to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just you know build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall, and then we create really nice, you know, shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't does it not make sense to make the list and make it detailed? If if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book. 
And the problem is that book, that wall shredded me. So I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book where I'll go do a speech and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up, and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me, make the list, and take a break. Um, How essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches... Marvel comics, DC comics, and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. It, it, take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, complain. Um, ignore. Avoid. Talk about him. Uh, make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them, and then she brings it up, like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do, I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me, and yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing, and yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. Or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall, and I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall made excuses about the wall. One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's If your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is uh, he's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. 
Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? Just one of us. We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. We'll be right back, folks. Can working parents in America, or anywhere for that matter, ever find true leisure time? According to Leisure Studies Department at the University of Iowa, true leisure is that place in which we realize our humanity. If that's true, then we're doing dangerously little in realizing much of our humanity, aren't we? Bridget Schulte, author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has Time, is joining us today to talk uh, about why leisure time is important and how we can be sure to make it a larger priority in our lives. Bridget, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is, uh, oh, it's such an important time. I just came back from a week-long vacation of leisure time, and it was heavenly. Well, let me ask you, did you check your email? Did you do work? Did you? I, you know what? I, 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 I little, like maybe once or tw- actually probably twice in the week. Wow. It because, was heaven. Uh, that's wonderful uh, because actually your experience is becoming uh, increasingly rare in the United States, uh-huh. um, you know, which is, uh, it's very interesting and somewhat disturbing, but the United States, we're the only advanced economy that does not have any national paid vacation policy. I think what I didn't know until I wrote the book, and I think a lot of people don't realize, is back in the 1930s, when we were talking about labor laws that still still govern us today, the, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, we were looking at the minimum wage, and we were looking at the 40-hour work week. The third thing that people wanted was uh, paid vacation as, as just sort of a part of what people got in, mm. in, um, in their work life. And that, that did not pass. There was a lot of opposition to it. So now what you have is, is about one in every four workers in the United States they have no access to vaca- paid vacation at all. And then the people who do, it's always, it's voluntary at the discretion of the employer. Uh, many people have, you know, an average of 10 to 14 days a year. Uh, you know, and you compare that to the European countries where they have five and six weeks a year. Right, <laughs> uh, right. Like the, entire, the entire country of Sweden takes the month of July off. I think that's just such a wild concept for Americans. <laughs> How great is that, Wow. Well, I, I will tell you what's great about that is there is there's really interesting leisure research or vacation research. We don't do any in the United States because we don't take enough for them to be able to hmm. study what vacation does. But they found particularly in Sweden, there's this something they call collective restoration. When everyone has that time off, people become more connected to each other. They do have that time to refresh their soul. But what they noticed 
is that uh, prescriptions for antidepressant medications just dropped off the face of the earth because people actually had time to connect, to remember what was important. And think about it. You know, there is something a lot of people tend to be off between, say, Christmas and New Year's. Mm -hmm. A lot of businesses shut down, you know, uh, offices closed. There's something fundamentally different about that time, if you think about it when you're off but everybody else is off versus if you're trying to take two weeks off, say, in July or a week off with your kids during spring break, it feels different because you're the only one off. And so a lot of people tend to feel guilty and they worry. And a lot of our workplaces, they make you feel guilty. It's like, oh, nice. Where are you off to? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Rather than, oh, where are you going? That's great. Uh, and so there have been re- there's research um, by Rand and others that show that actually even when we do take vacation, we don't take all of it. And when we do go on it, uh, a majority of Americans take work along with them. So what you were describing, that ability to really unplug and refresh, is becoming increasingly rare. A lot of Americans mm. just don't do it. Well, it's what a great point that when I'm off but my whole team is back here working, you do feel you feel bad. You feel like, oh, boy, they're going to. They're going to hate me. And and um, I mean, it really becomes an issue. And then but I, I did notice that I felt so I felt so much less guilt about my family because I always work because I was with my family. So, holy cow, is this is this different? I mean, are we actually busier than we've ever been or is it just that we keep, you know, pretending like we're busier? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, really. Um, one of the things that I looked at in my book is, is I really wanted to answer that question. Is this real or, or is this Memorex? Is, you know, is, yeah. it, is, it, is it something that we're just sort of inventing? Uh, and the interesting thing is really since the 1980s, if you start looking at work trends, work hours for knowledge workers have been on the rise. And so now for for office workers, for people who they call knowledge workers, uh, we work among the longest hours and what what uh, what international organizations call extreme hours of really any economy. Only Japan and South Korea work longer hours than we do. Uh, So we do have these increasing hours at work. Uh, with technology, one of the things that we're discovering is that technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but it actually has been making work more complicated. Mm. You know, think about it. There are over 100 billion emails sent and received every day. And while on the one hand, that's made communication so much easier and wonderful, all you have to do is think of all the times people CC you on things. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, and it's a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of stuff to go through. It's just a lot of information overload. We get decision fatigue. Our brain just that we're at uh, what neuroscientists call channel capacity. We just can't handle any more information coming in. So that's made work even more complicated. Uh, we have meetings that go on forever. Uh, uh, we're a really heavy meeting culture in our work. So work has become more complicated. Uh, technology enables us to, to stay always on. We have these work cultures that really value that always on. Um, you know, we tend to think that the ideal worker is somebody who's available and always working at the drop of a hat. So we reward that, even though what I found in my book is that that actually does not, uh, that working that way actually kind of leads you toward burnout rather than, uh, you know, really great work, effective work. Uh, Because what we're discovering through neuroscience is that if you really want insight, if you really want creativity, if you really want to think of you know, invent the next best thing or even just do your job well, you really do need to be not only rested and sort of in a positive mood, but you need time off. 
You need time through the day. You need to take breaks. Go and walk around the office or better, go walk around the block or mm-hmm. just go get outside. Because what we're discovering is that our brain really works on two speeds. We have a concentrated mode where we're actually working and focusing on things. But then we also have this diffuse mode. And what we're finding through neuroscience is that in that diffuse kind of daydreamy, mind-wandering state, our brain is actually more active, and that's when insight comes. Hmm. Your brain is literally wired to have your best ideas in the shower when you're in that kind of diffuse mode of thinking. And so if you really want to do your best work, you, you, know, you don't want to work like a maniac and burn out and be there 24-7, even though your boss thinks that you're doing such a great <laughs> job. You're really not. No. It's the person who leaves to go have dinner with their family and you know, gets a good night's sleep that will come in and be more effective excuse me, more effective, probably work a, a lot more efficiently and put themselves in a better position to have better ideas. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're breaking the we're breaking all the rules. And then we wonder yeah. why we're overwhelmed. Right, right. Well, and on the, the other side, so you were saying, are we more busier? Or are we more overwhelmed than ever? So that's just that's just work. So the way that I that I decided to look at the at this whole question was uh, the Harvard um, psychologist Eric Erickson, I took one of, uh, you know, sort of his philosophy was that the richest and fullest lives, you know, if you want to talk about the good life, Mm -hmm. he said they make time for the three great arenas of life. Uh, And he defined those as work, having meaningful work, having a sense of purpose and and kind of why you're here during your your short time here on earth, you know, that you have meaningful work, that you have time for love. Love is the other great arena of life. And you know, what we know now uh, from all this happiness research out of Harvard and other places really just reinforces a lot of common sense, which is that human happiness is based on our connection with other people and deep, real connection, not just sort of Facebook chitter chatter, but, you know, really feeling supported and understood and connected and loved and being able to love other people as well. Having time for friendships, having time for your family, you know, putting your phone down and, you know, watching your child blow bubbles, you know, right. <laughs> that that's really that that's a key to human happiness. That's important. And the third great arena that uh, Eric Erickson talked about was play, work, love and play. And that's where I got the title from my hmm. book. I thought, well, well, what's happening? And I would say that we've really given sh- play short shrift. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to think that leisure is and play is sort of a waste of time or it's it's for child's play and uh, that we're, what we really need to do is be busy and productive. And, you know, I have to tell you, I really fell into that. I used to have this really long to-do list and I would, I would call it virtuous busyness and I'd, <laughs> you know, scurry around and I'd be busy at work and I'd be busy at home and I'd be cleaning up my closets and I'd be doing all this stuff and yeah, yeah, I'll play with you later, I, you know, uh, and then I'd get to the end of the day and I, I can't tell you what I did, but I knew I was busy. Oh. And it was, it was so interesting when I was uh, reporting on the book, I talked to a leisure researcher and he said, well, well, what does leisure feel like to you? And I said, well, honestly, I just, I'm too busy. And I kind of felt proud saying it, oh, I'm too busy for leisure time. <laughs> you know, I, it's important. And he said, oh, one of the seven deadly sins. I'm like, what? What? I'm sitting. <laughs> what are you talking about? And it was fascinating. He said that in the Middle Ages, there was, you know, uh, one of the seven deadly sins was sloth, right. right? Being kind of the couch potato, not being involved or active in life. You know, you're just really lazy. But the flip side of that, the other side of the coin, so to speak, was this state that they called acedia. And the way that uh, this leisure researcher described it to me is it's like, you know, the sense that you're running on the treadmill and you're just running faster and faster. And boy, you don't know where you're going, but you're making great time. 
Hmm. And I just thought that that described so perfectly the way that a lot of us are living. You know, um, behavioral psychologists call it tunneling. And when, that's just such a great image to me. It's either, you know, either being on that treadmill going nowhere or tunneling. You just get busy. And then all you can do is you just keep tunneling and tunneling and get busier and busier. And you've got this long list that never seems to end. And so you're just focused on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea that you're actually like digging to the center of the earth, right? Mm. Uh, that you haven't really taken the time to ask yourself, where am I digging? Why am I digging? Why am I digging so fast? Where am I going? What's really important here? And so that sense of, uh, of, of leisure or play is really nothing, you know, kind of nothing bigger than just taking a time, taking time to have that breath to just remember, wow, I'm alive. You know, uh, this, is, this is an amazing and wonderful day. And, um, you know, I'm not going to be here, uh, you know, for, for all that long. I mean, our lifespans are pretty short. And uh, how can I make the most of this day? How can I make time for work as it's meaningful and people that I love and, mm. and time to play just to kind of create open space in my, in my day to remember what's important. Oh, Bridget, this is awesome. Let's um, let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Br- Bridget Schulte, author of the book Overwhelmed, Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time. Uh, I want to ask her if, you know, being raised in Oregon, growing up a bit in Wyoming as well, has influenced her ability to work at the Post. Washington Post and be part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, what a combination, folks. Stick with us. Interesting insights about being overwhelmed up next. To the Matt Townsend Show, we are uh, speaking with Bridget Schulte, who is the author of the book "Overwhelmed: Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time," and she is bringing us some incredible research from the leisure time research field, um, and and also, I think, rattling our cages a bit. Uh, Bridget, we so appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. It's really great to be with you. Now, check this. What a history you've got. So you, here you've got a New York Times bestseller um, book on time pressure, but you you also worked uh, – was you were an award-winning journalist with The Washington Post and The Washington Post magazine, part of a team that won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. Right. And here's what blows my mind. You also grown, you grew up in Oregon – Spent mm-hmm. some times, uh, some some time on the Casper Star Tribune in Wyoming, right? So right. when you were just talking about our lives, our need to slow down, I kind of think in the West, sometimes we're a little better at this than maybe the people in the East. Well, you know, um, I would. That was certainly what I thought when I first began working on my book, and I did. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I was so lucky. I grew up a block away from the largest, you know, they call it an urban forest. Mm. It was a forest park. Yeah. And so where I played was in the forest every day. You know, there are beautiful walking trails and little creeks. And so, I mean, I I was a city kid, but I had as much about, you know, kind of a forest experience literally down the street. And I loved that. So that was, you know, very different. It was also really rainy in Portland, so I read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
helped your reading. Uh, I, That's right. 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 To, to help me become a writer, I suppose. Um, and then I spent my summers in Wyoming. Both of my parents grew up in Casper, Wyoming. And so I, I say, you know, there are not that many people in Wyoming, and I'm related to probably all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my uncles on my mom's side were ranchers. And so we would go and spend uh, the summer up in the Bighorn Mountains. And, um, you know, it's just very, really very different, uh, you know, from the kind of hurly-burly of urban life, yeah. you know, where you do have time to kind of stare at the clouds and, you know, you, you, you know, wander around and, and kind of like follow bugs and birds <laughs> and, and, and a, you know, really different kind of experience. And it did not feel overwhelming. You know, the days felt like they lasted a million years sometimes. Um, you know, looking at the stars right. was just, you know, an awe-inspiring experience. Uh, and so when I started the book, uh, I thought, well, maybe I'm just overwhelmed because I live in Washington. I have two little kids. You know, I work at the Washington Post, which is sort of, you know, kind of a crazy environment in a crazy profession yeah. that never stops, right? News never stops. Uh, so how could you, quote, unquote, ever be done? Um, and it's also the kind of profession, like most writers, it can always be better and you're, you could always do more. And, and so it's hard, to, particularly if you have kind of perfectionist tendencies, which I certainly struggle with. Um, it's, it's really hard to kind of like close the computer and, and go home at the end of the day. And plus you're in an environment that really rewards you if you don't. Um, mm. So I just thought, well, maybe it's just because I live in Washington. So as I began working on the book, I, I started looking for research. I was wondering, has anybody done research into busyness and kind of the fast pace of life? And I found this one, uh, I was looking through the academic literature, and I found this one researcher. There really weren't that many people at the time. And she studied busyness and the fast pace of life in Fargo, North Dakota. Huh. And I called her up and I said, you're kidding. I thought this was sort of like the a sickness of like the East Coast right. where, I, where I was living or maybe like L.A. where you're in your car all the time or Chicago or like big cities. And she just she was very funny. She was this lovely woman. She said, oh, honey, you want to meet some overwhelmed North Dakotans? I could arrange that. <laughs> And so I did. Yeah. I spent some time with her in North Dakota, of all places, and, you know, um, and sat in on a focus group. And there were people there. There was a, a guy who loved to canoe, but he just felt like he never he could. He was too busy to ever go out. And then if he did, he would feel too guilty. You know, he just said, hmm. you know, there's this whole feeling, this kind of Protestant work ethic in America that, if you know, uh, you know, idle hands are a devil's workshop. So mm -hmm. I always want to be busy. And so he wouldn't even allow himself, even on the weekends, to go canoeing. There was a, another young man. He just, his wife had had a baby. He works 70 hours. He does all this, uh, you know, volunteering in the community. And he was just like, he wasn't sleeping, you know. I said, yeah, I don't have any time for, for anything other than all of this stuff. Uh, there was one woman there who said that the last time she uh, she felt like she had a moment of leisure was in her doctor's office, you know, waiting oh, for her mammogram. You wow. know, it's like, Wow. You know, when you think about what leisure is, the, the Greek philosopher said it was the, it was the, we work to have leisure. It's what Aristotle said, upon which happiness is built. Uh, and so for, for the Greeks, there was this concept that, you know, that there was more to life than just like working to have a living and, you know, and then just kind of coming home and, and recovering so that you could go back to work the next day, that there was this sort of third space, if you will, and they said it was the place where you refresh your soul and you, you become most fully human. Hmm. Um, and so that was a really exalted kind of uh, time. Uh, Ovid said, I can tell the type of person you are by the leisure you have. Um, and so we've really devalued that in, in the United States, I would argue. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, you showed your status by how much leisure time you had. That was, you know, the sort of the wealthier you were, the idle rich, right? The more 
leisure time you had. And really, in the last century, that's really flipped on its head. You know, back in the 1950s, people were predicting that we were so productive. We would uh, we would all have four day work weeks. We'd have uh, you know we'd retire at age 38. You know that, yeah. we, and we'd all have these wonderful lives of leisure. And uh, and then the question becomes, well, what happened? You know, <laughs> we're working more than ever. We don't take leisure, and we've sort of fooled ourselves into thinking leisure isn't important. Um, uh, you know, so that's sort of really what what I was looking at. And so part of it, as I was mentioning, work has become more intensive. Um, and also at home, uh, we have, you know, we like to make fun of helicopter parents and mm-hmm. snowplow parents and, uh, you know, steamroller parents and all that. But, uh, but that's also a trend that started back in the 1980s, just like work, work started to increase and intensify in the 1980s. Parenting and particularly mothering standards also started to increase in the 1980s. And we've never expected mothers to do more, to be more, and to do it all alone than we ever have before. You know, when you, when you look at the social science literature around motherhood, uh, it's really astounding, especially at a time when we have a majority of mothers who actually work outside the home for pay. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting, strange, and punishing time. Um, you know, I, one of the things that really blew my mind is when I saw the, the time diary statistics that working mothers today spend more time with their children than stay-at-home moms did in the 60s and 70s. Wow. You know, and at first I thought, no, that's crazy. How could that be? You know, because I was an incredibly guilty working mother. You know, we live in the Washington, D.C. area, and, you know, I'm married to a journalist, and you don't, you know, it's like it's really hard to survive on one salary. And so I felt like I had to work. And, um, you know, plus I wanted to work as well. That was a sort of, but I had this push-me-pull-you. I also really wanted to be a very involved mother. And I was very guilty, and it was really hard. you know, and uh, when I saw that figure, I was just like, wow, how is that possible? And then I was, I was reading, and it's really clear that, that uh, the majority of mothers have given up time for sleep. They sleep less. They've given up time for personal care. You know, we don't go uh, to the, you know, the hairdresser like, right. you know, maybe a couple decades ago. And most, the majority of mothers spend the, the, almost all of their leisure time, their free time with their children. But then when you look into what that time is like, you know, people are so busy and we're so worried about our kids and what the future holds that that time has really become this kind of frenetic ferrying them to lessons and running to the carpool and logistics. And and so it's not necessarily even good quality time. You know, we are reading to our kids more. We're certainly playing with them uh, more than, than, say, in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, I guess what, what I came to realize is that, is that there's really a sweet spot. And, you know, more is not more. More time is not better. You know, you really want to be able to give your kids independence. Like when I was out playing in the forest in Oregon, my mother was not there with me, you know. Right. And that would have been a very different experience. I was not playing with my mother. We Sometimes we feel like we have to play with our kids. Oh. So there's sort of that sweet spot that you absolutely want to be connected with them. You want to read. You do want to play. But you also want to give them their own space for their own independence, to yeah. grow their own sense of resilience and grit. And that you don't want that time to be stressful. And uh, that it's the stress that they really remember. There was a, a, a study that I wrote about that really looked at all this extra time that mothers in particular are spending with their kids and asking, well, has it mattered? You know, has it mattered for children's, you know, uh, cognitive development or the social emotional growth? And they looked, and from ages 3 to 11, all that extra time really hasn't, you know, hasn't, hasn't has, moved the needle on right. anything. Hasn't changed it. Hasn't changed it where 
They weren't able to look at infants because that's just, um, uh, you know, they didn't have the time diary data for it. And I do think that infants, it's a completely different, that zero to three is a, is a different question. Uh, they did find that for teenagers, it did matter that you spent time with them, but not a lot of time, you know, uh, that amount, the amount of time as connecting over breakfast or, or dinner, just being aware of what's going on in their lives, mm. being interested, do, finding ways to connect. Uh, you know, so I think that that's also really hopeful. A lot of us, you know, parents, we want to do the right thing, but with our kids and, uh, you know, we want to set them on their way. And I find that really hopeful that it's really about finding the sweet spot. That, that sweet spot. We've got about 30 seconds, Bridget. What would you say is the the fastest way to kind of to get in? And, and what's the what's the one thing we could do today to take back our lives, to, to get and feel and be less overwhelmed? Take time to pause as as busy as you think you are. You know, even if it's just take one breath when you hang up the phone, take a little walk around the office, walk around the block. Uh, just allow yourself a break and you'll be surprised Mm. how things start to shift. Take time to pause and find that sweet spot. Well done, man. Bridget, thank you so much. Love your insight. Love the book. Uh, The book again, Overwhelmed Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Got to look that one up, folks. That's a keeper that'll change your life. Bridget Schulte is her name. We'll have her back on the show. What a powerful, powerful person she is. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back and uh, be talking about... uh, some tweets, some ugly tweets. My my people are going to attack me. Mean tweets with Dr. Matt. Stick with me. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Social media and the Internet uh, use is at an all-time high and growing, especially among teenagers and young adults. Have you ever wondered what they might be saying to others through that screen? Is it always nice? Doubt it. Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to talk about what happens when we forget that people can read everything that we are typing. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. We're going to start off today's segment by playing a round of Celebrity Mean Tweets. Matt Townsend edition. Okay, so now celebrity mean tweets. Oh boy! Now, who's the okay. television person that does this? This is Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Okay, right. Matt, I yes. have some of these mean tweets okay. written about you. Written about me. You got to read these out by loud. my peeps. So the the story is Jimmy Kimmel has a, he has celebrities a celebrity. come on and they read, read the mean tweet tweets that people about say about them. them. Okay, yeah. so here we go. What okay. Am I supposed to say who it's from? You can if you want. Oh, fix it. I just lost some. <laughs> okay, here we go. This is from <laughs> Terry South. Oh, uh, Dr. Townsend is not a real doctor. Hold it. Uh, Dr. Townsend is not a real doctor. He can talk to you about your feelings, but he can't fix broken bones. I sense rude. some better some bitterness in that. Yeah. That that was really bitter. That was also Terry. What else are you getting? Um are we doing the next one? Yeah. Dr. Matt Townsend got his PhD from Trump University. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that Ouch. funny? Ouch. It's legit, I guess. Uh, yeah. It's totally I graduated legit. summa cum laude. These are mean <laughs> tweets. I'm sorry. <sighs> Keep going. Matt is very insensitive. This is from Palakiko. 
Was that the end of the tweet? That's pretty much it. <laughs> he went. He went all the way to Costa Rica and only brought us back Zika. I think there's a story Ooh, there. Oh. Zing. No, Zika. Oh, Zika. <laughs> Palakiko. Zika Palakika. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a rice dish. Something. Zika Palakika. Uh, that was from Palakiko. Darn it. Um, if I hear Matt say "mmm" or you knocked it out of the park one more time, I'm quitting. That has to be from Sadie. <laughs> that was totally Sadie. Mmm. Good thought, Sadie. Yeah. You are quitting. Just kidding. You're fired. This isn't supposed to be this yet. mean, is it? Oh, you're not done yet. Dr. Townsend is not a real doctor. Hold on, I'm back to that one. Oh, Matt is a cheapskate. <laughs> this is from Leanna. He only ever gives me the leftover food that's been in his desk drawer for months. Can I get a steak? <laughs> Am I supposed to feed her? She's offended by the food that you do feed her, apparently. Dr. Matt Townsend likes Nickelback. (laughs) That's my favorite one. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's fighting words. (laughs) What's wrong with that? Mmm. Sadie. Um, I just got Sadie back in there. Uh, Oh, right there. Sadie, I think I saw a balding spot on him the other day. Hashtag old. How did you know that? I had to pre-screen all these tweets to make sure they were appropriate for the are these, radio. Are these insults or just observations? I think, I think these, it's a little bold. It seems like these are insults. Okay. Uh, Jeff Simpson. Uh, Matt Townsend is like Steve Carell and Andy Richter, except Matt has a lot less money and about 12 more kids. Hashtag Matt mean tweets. <laughs> it's trending on Twitter right now. It's not trending. These are rude. It. So, I mean, but I mean, we laugh, right? It's funny. I didn't that laugh. That was funny. I thought it was rude. <laughs> okay, but no, see, it hurts your I feelings. I don't, I just thought, I'm still, I can't. This is why we're talking about this, because it's funny. We watch celebrity mean tweets, we listen to your mean tweets, and we laugh. I can't get over Sadie's, where she said she doesn't like me to say not, she oh. knocked it out of the park. And, mmm. Mm. I guess you'll have to tell her from now on that that was a complete failure. Yeah. I'm going to have to just shoot straight. I mean, but really, what I was getting at with this is we laugh, and this is what Jimmy Kimmel yeah. was getting at. All right, we laugh because it's it's Matt, or you know, oh, you celebrities. Laugh. You laugh, not celebrity, but you laugh but at me in real life. Not even with me. This does happen to people in real life, and they really actually do get. There are really people mean that things get hurt. That get hurt. Cyberbullying. Yeah, that's what I really wanted that, to talk about. That's what that was. You that's all, the, <laughs> you all just cyberbullied that's what, me. In, in, in a sense, Jimmy Kimmel and what we were just doing through Matt, you know, as we're talking about. But this happens to young kids, adults. Yeah. I mean, it happens to all of us. People it's say never, mean things, and they think because they're saying it, you know, they're on a screen, it dehumanizes the situation, right. and so they don't feel like. So the consequences feel less hurtful. Doesn't I never give, say rude things like that. But it's just as rude to someone who reads it. Doesn't it give you a warm and fuzzy, though, to know that people care that much about you, that they're willing to take the time to talk to other people about you? Yeah, but no. all the teenagers don't see it that way. No. I mean, because the problem hmm. with cyberbullying is is it's a type of bullying that happen, that can happen 24-7, seven days a week. You can't just go home after school and 
Get oh, away yeah. from it. No. It follows you everywhere you go because everyone has a phone and everyone has social media and every, the internet is everywhere. This was, this was a very big wake-up call about who your friends are. I think it's just – yeah, and I think – And the kids – like you're saying, these kids can't go away. No, and they can't get away from think it. Think about and how that impacts their little fragile psyche. It makes them – it makes them – especially when it starts when they're young teens, it makes them more susceptible to low self-esteem, depression, suicidal thoughts, mm. drug and substance abuse and all of those things that – Well, they just had that 11-year-old girl that, that killed herself because she was involved in an accident – it damaged her face. She and went to school and everybody made fun of her. That's horrible. I mean, I had my little brother. Somebody made an Instagram page. We don't know who it was because it can be anonymous. That's the other problem. An Instagram page um, that was called Bowen is Gay. Oh. And like, and they would post photos of him and they would write these horribly mean captions. And like, That's horrible. And it was, it was rude. And he would horrible. shrug it off like it wasn't a big deal. But I know... Those things, it's just, it's not okay. Well, and the funny thing with uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and these guys, it, it, it's a never-ending thing. For celebrities, people are constantly oh, hitting him. every day. But your brother's not a celebrity, but he gets pummeled still. Yeah, he still gets pummeled. Well, and I know it happens. I mean, like, I took my whole platform with Miss Lehigh. I was suicide prevention. That's so right. I know this happens. You know. I just want parents to be aware. You know, watch your kids. Teach your kids cell phone etiquette. Yeah. You know, just because you can't see it's their reaction there, so you when gotta... you type it doesn't mean there's not a reaction. Oh, that's right. That's right. Excellent job, Caitlin. Thanks for putting me down to teach a great lesson. That really was very Taking good. Taking one for the team. Thanks, Taking. We all could do well from a good roast. <laughs> yeah, we could. I, I, I love roast beef. That was more like a honey roast. Mmm, I love honey roasted ham. We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us.